0: Uh, Chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, we we dealt with the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are narrative and historical. They basically give us the life and times of Daniel and his friends and the nation of Israel after they were taken out of Israel, Jerusalem proper, and swept away to Babylon. So the first six chapters, then, are narrative dealing with that particular history. The last chapters, chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, are all prophetic. Prophetic with a point. There's a point to be made in regards to uh, the prophetic portions of this, this particular book. Chapter number 7, then. As we begin it, we want to note the fact that chapter number 7 is written, I know this might be a little confusing, but it's written in the Aramaic language. Uh, Chapter chapter 2 through chapter 7 are really written in the Aramaic language, or what would be like in Europe today, the standard language is English. In that day, the standard language was Aramaic. And then you get into chapter number 8, and it switches from the Aramaic language over to the Hebrew language, and it continues on through to the end in the Hebrew language. That is because chapter number 7 deals with the Gentile nations once again. We're going to see that as we go into chapter number 7. So there's a difference there as far as language, and that language does denote who the main subjects are. So chapter 2... Uh, ...properly chapter 2 through verse 3. At verse 3, it switches over to the Aramaic language and it continues on through chapter number 7. From chapter 8 all the way through to the end is then in the Hebrew language. We have here four visions of Daniel. Now, we know that there were pagan kings that had visions. Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. Belshazzar had a vision. Uh, We had visions... They were good visions, and they were visions from God. But now we have Daniel himself, and he is having four separate visions. One in chapter 7, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, starting at verse 24 and to the end, and then one in chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through to the end of Daniel chapter 12. Now, I want you to note by these visions, very important to note this, that in chapter 7, we have a, a general type vision. It is almost a repeat of chapter number 2 in Daniel. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had his vision. It was this giant statue. You can put that up there next. Oh, I can do that. That's right. They told me I got a little clicker here. Let me see, Let me see if that thing will work. Oh, no. Nope. Went with too many. See? Oh, you have little faith. I clicked it, and I clicked it again because I think it doesn't work. But it did work. And so, we have this statue in chapter number 2, and it was from Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, some people ask, why would Nebuchadnezzar have such a significant vision? Because it is extremely accurate. I don't know. That's the way God decided to do it. Here was a pagan king at that time, a very pagan king, a very self-absorbed king a king that was very much absorbed with himself, and he has this vision, and we have the head of gold, Babylon, the the shoulders and arms, uh, the Medo-Persians, the thigh area of Greece, and then the legs of Rome, and then we have this giant stone that came in, and it destroyed the whole thing. Well, that stone is the main subject matter of the book of Daniel where ultimately the King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to reign and rule on this earth. Chapter 7 of the book of Daniel we will begin there. You can see the glorious statue. Nebuchadnezzar saw this glorious statue, uh, almost depicting the glory of men, you know. Later on, he would devise the statue, and all would be told to bow to that statue. And if they didn't bow, they'd die. And over here we have the beasts in chapter number 7. They correlate directly with. One is a vision from man's point of view. The other in chapter 7 is uh, is the, the same vision from God's point of view. And what he sees as the world empires, the world leaders, what he sees is unruly, uncontrolled beasts. That's the way he sees it. Well, is it true? Chris Maddox was up here on Wednesday night. I want you you to realize what he said. He said that, well, of course, he's been around the world. He's an M.K. He was born on a mission field. Now he's on a different mission field. He's been around the world. He says... And it is absolutely true. You think there's corruption in the United States, you ain't seen nothing yet till you get across the seas. The corruption in the world is no longer an isolated corruption here and there amongst some really rotten governments. The corruption is worldwide. We think we got it bad? Oh, it's everywhere. So what is it? A glorious statue with a head of gold and... We have the silver and then the bronze and then the iron and all that glory. Oh, I think God's right. Chapter 7 seems to be a bit more accurate. Unruly beasts. There's a saying that goes. Corruption, uh, 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 power corrupts and ultimate power ultimately corrupts. It happens every time. Chapter number 7, let's begin our reading there. In the first year of Belteshazzar, and so we know from chapter 6, we were in uh, the reign of Darius the Mede. Uh, We're going to switch back again to Belteshazzar. Darius the Mede, of course, would have been the very end of Daniel's existence. He would have died there in the Medo-Persian reign. Now we're going to switch back to Belteshazzar, and it's in the first year of Belteshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and a vision. Now, it's interesting, this term, dream and a vision, because oftentimes dreams are are noted with night time, uh, sleep, and and, and sometimes they're not as accurate as a a vision. But he calls it a dream and a vision. So this is extremely accurate, uh, what he's being given here. In his mind, as he laid on his bed, then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by the night, and behold, four winds of the heaven were stirred up like up the great sea. And so, you know, in Revelation 17, uh, it talks about the winds of the heaven being held back. There was a power that held those winds back. And here we have them being stirred up. Well, they're held back during the tribulation. They're stirred up uh, during this particular time. It says in verse number 4, the first like a lion, and had wings of an eagle. In other words, this is the king of the beasts, and not... Listen, if you saw a lion, and he was restricted to terra firma, and you're within a small proximity, and he happens to be hungry, you're dead. Now, let's think of the, the unbelievable scene, is if this lion could actually run really, really fast, about 35, 40 miles an hour, and then take off and fly... You're really dead. You ain't got a chance. Wow, a flying lion? Bad news. Bad news for everybody around. And so we have the lion first, and then in verse number four, uh, verse number five, and behold, another beast, a second resembling a bear. So we have a lion and a bear, and there is a leopard. Uh, verse number six, and then we have this uh, uh, this undescribable. Beast, this fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, extremely strong, and had uh, iron teeth. This is a replay of chapter 2. The lion, of course, is Babylon. The bear that's lifted up on one side, it says he's lifted up on one side. Why is he lifted up on one side? The Medes came in first, but then the Persians came in. And when the Persians came in, they became the greatness of that particular kingdom. That particular kingdom of the Medes and Persians actually spread out much larger than the Babylonian Empire did. The Babylonian Empire, though, was much more pure and in control of the territory. But the Medes and the Persians really took over a tremendous amount of territory. You notice that the Medes and the Persians are then like a bear, and that bear has three ribs in his mouth. That would be Babylon in the east. Egypt in the south, and the Lydian kingdom up in Asia Minor. The three areas that the Medes and the Persians tromped into. They weren't fast. The idea is that they weren't fast. And history bears this out, by the way. Almost a plodding along, plodding along. No one stood in their way. God gave them absolute control of the world. And so we have that second kingdom. And then we have uh, the third kingdom represented by a leopard. And uh, it says, which had on his back four wings of a bird. Now, a leopard is not a slow animal at all. A leopard is much faster than a lion. And now it has four wings to boot. And that, of course, goes 200 years into the future. And this is why the naysayers and the critics are adamant about one thing. Now, I want, you to, I want you to realize something as you go through this. They do not claim that Daniel's prophecies were so general in content that they could take history and fit them into the generalities that he gave. They don't even go there. Now, I want you to hear what the, what the naysayers, these are the unbelievers... They don't even go there. They say that these prophecies are so detailed and so unbelievably accurate that he could not have written them, period. You see what I'm saying? What I'm saying is this. Many will go along and say, well, you just, you just throw out some general statement and then you just take history and you jam it into that hole. <laughs> not here. Not here. The historians will absolutely concur that this is accurate history. That's what they'll say it is. We say it's accurate prophecy. And so you have the Greek empire that comes along. The Greek empire that comes along. And that is the leopard with uh, four wings on his back. And, of course, when the Greeks came in under Alexander the Great, listen... 11 years. It only took him 11 years to do what the Medes and the Persians took many, 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 many years to do. He came in like a storm. He came in quick, and he did the business quick. And he went all the way to the end of the world. And Alexander the Great was one unbelievably strong general that we're going to deal with in chapter number 8. So we have the Greeks, the Leopard the four-winged leopard, and then we have in verse number four, it says, uh, verse number seven, excuse me, after this, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." Verse number 8, while I contemplated the horns, behold, another little horn came up. This, I believe, is the first occurrence of the Antichrist in all of Scripture. This is the first. Now, we can go back and we can say, well, wait a second, Mr. how about Nimrod? Not directly, though. This is a direct occurrence. Reference to the Antichrist, that one that shall be, we haven't even seen him yet. That's where this is going. That's where the prophecies of Daniel are going. They're going to reveal to Daniel that there is this enemy of Israel, and he's on the prowl. Listen, the Old Testament prophets, uh, uh, they would see in their minds, they would see the, the Messiah that would come. The sent one of God. And he would rescue the nation of Israel. That's what they, they, they thought when they saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the miracles. He's got the stamp of Messiahship all over him. But he turned his, his, his head like a flick towards Jerusalem because he had a job to do that God the Father gave him to do, you see. So all they saw was this glorious time when the Son of the living God, he would come and he'd rule and reign in behalf of that nation. No, Daniel was going to show something else that would happen first. And that's what's being primarily revealed here as we go through. Verse number 9, And I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Oh, boy. It's time for God to sit down. He didn't sit down in order to... uh, cast great uh, uh words of mercy and grace, he sat down to judge you see, and it says this and a river verse number ten and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him the courts the courts sat, and the books were open mm. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Who's the horn? The horn, that little horn. He he came in insignificance. We're going to find out that in chapter 8. Absolutely accurate again. The little horn, but he didn't remain little for very long. Insignificance, and he would boast of great things. Oh, he was so full of himself. Then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. You could go right back to Revelation chapter 19 if you want the full story on that. Oh, you see the sovereign God Almighty, the sovereign God Almighty, he rules and reigns and no one will stand in his place. Now listen to what it says in verse 13. I kept looking at the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, and one like this, listen to this title, Son of Man. Wow. From man shall come the the answer. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ have to die for the sins of the world? Why didn't God just take a wand and, and flash that wand around and say, Redeemed, you're all set free. By men they fell. By men they must be rescued. The redemption must come through a man. Here comes the Son of Man. That's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That's why every time in the New Testament when He refers to Himself as the Son of Man, or anyone else refers to Himself as the Son of Man, those Pharisees just, woo, they just, how dare you! Such audacity! They knew. That wasn't the first time the word Son of Man was ever preached. It was right here in Daniel. He claimed to be the Son of Man. And He came up to the Ancient of Days. And that, I believe, is God the Father. And was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that's the final straw why because the son of the living god the messiah the one who will come in the second coming of the lord jesus christ is going to stop time we're going to move into eternity what what a blessing Oh, if you're here this morning and you don't know this one i'll tell you he's going to rule and reign on this earth and just like the Ancient of Days moved himself over and took his place upon that throne because of judgment, there will be judgment. For those who say no to Christ, no to Christ, no to Christ, what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, I see, I know, I understand, you were, you died on a cross, your blood was shed, you, re- you, you were the redemption. I don't want it. That's what you're saying. Oh, friends, the King of King and Lord is lords, He's on the horizon now, let me tell you. This whole world is given over to corruption now. Now the world is going to look for a one-man answer, and that's what we're dealing with when you deal with the Antichrist. It's all corrupt, every ounce of it. And so he will have a dominion, and that dominion will be everlasting. God is in control. This is what it says in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord. And he turns it whatever way he chooses. King number one, Babylon. King number two, Medo-Persians. King number three, Grecians. Oh, that, that, that giant man. You know, Alexander the Great. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like a channel of water in his hands. And he moves them into the way that they might accomplish his will and his purposes on this earth that ultimately the king of kings and lord of lords, the lord Jesus Christ is going to ride on that white horse he will be ultimately in control of the things on this earth now I must continue and I must go quickly chapter number 8 now remember what I said we have four visions they're they're, uh, less detailed chapter 7 More detail, chapter 8. A bit more detail, chapter 9 and then chapter 11. Oh, this is where it puts the naysayers to rest. Because it gets into some real, it's like a history book. It's like a history book. Hundreds of years, hundreds of years during the Maccabean period. Hundreds of years before, uh, 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 before Daniel wrote this. These things actually did transpire. This is 553 B.C. now in chapter number 8. Remember, the language changes over to the Hebrew language. So now we're going to isolate our attentions uh, away from the nations and what was going on with the nations and the, the, the relationship of Israel with the nations, but we're going to isolate our attentions to Israel itself. Watch how it pins it down. This is what it says. And I looked in a vision. This is about two years after the first vision. And I looked in a vision, verse number 2, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa. And and, and this is uh, in Elam. And I looked in a vision, and I myself was at Uli, uh, Uli Canal. And so this is in the Medo-Persian kingdom over in Persia, which would be uh, modern-day Iraq, excuse me, Iran, excuse me. Iran today, and so uh, Daniel is obviously in Babylon, but in in his vision, he's being transported over to Iran, now the interesting thing at this point was, at this particular point, uh, there was nothing in Iran, Susa was nothing, it was barely nomad tribes, as they would pass their way through. It had no significance at all. And later on, it would become uh, one of the premier cities in the Persian kingdom. He came over to a canal called the Ulai Canal. And this Ulai Canal, it was two bodies of water in Susa, in Iran. And these two bodies of water, uh, Well, some engineers probably thought it would be grand if they would... Connect them together. And so they dug a canal, and they say this canal was some 900 feet wide. Can you believe? That's quite a bit of digging, right? And they dug this canal, and that's where this whole vision takes place in that particular canal. Verse number 3, Then I lifted up my gaze, and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, and was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. Of course, that's, this is depicting the Medo-Persian kingdom now. We take the, the Babylonian kingdom is past, and we're going to look at the, the uh, Medo-Persian kingdom, and we know that the Medes came in first, but they were weak, and then came the Persians, and they were strong. So you have these two different uh, uh, horns, and one is longer uh, than the other. Verse number 4, and here's where it centers in on. Watch it now. This is where... The emphasis becomes great. I saw a ram, and it was budding westward, northward, and southward. It was budding not eastward because it was already eastward. Okay, this is Greece. This is Greece. And and, and it says, uh, uh, "...and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there any to rescue from his power." But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. And uh, so we have uh, this ram budding every direction. Verse number 5, "...while I was observing, behold, a male goat..." uh, Excuse me, excuse me, the ram. Male goat is, is Greece. I'm getting mixed up here. "...while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming in from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground." And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. And the male goat... I'm sorry, the ram is a Persian. The male goat then is the Grecian kingdom. That horn conspicuous between its eyes was indeed Alexander the Great, the first king of the Grecian empire. <laughs> and it says this, um, verse number 6, And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had uh, seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him... In his mighty wrath. And so we have this one single horn who is Alexander the Great. Now this is where it gets into such incredible detail that really the naysayers had no choice but to try to uh, convince people that Daniel did not write this. Alexander the Great. His father was Philip of the uh, Macedonia. His father, they say, was really the genius behind Alexander the Great. Remember, he's only about 21 years old when he came to power. He can't learn a lot in 21 years. But his father had learned tremendous. And his father had devised a method in battle that would defeat anyone. They'd cluster their men into these small groups, and they'd go in to the enemy like a knife. And that's how the Grecian Empire went into much, much larger armies Of the Persians, and they ended up defeating them. It was really Philip of Macedonia, his genius that was behind it all. It was uh, Alexander the Great's push uh, into the world, and his father's genius in in uh, in battle. And I saw verse seven, and I saw him come beside the ram. And he was enraged at him. Now, the reason why these words enraged at him is because the Medo-Persians dealt the Grecians a real blow when they went up into Greece. Now, interestingly enough, history tells us that they did not defeat the Grecians. The Grecians were actually able to push them off. But they really took casualties when they were up there. And many, many Grecians died. And so there was vengeance on the mind of Alexander. He wanted vengeance as to what the uh, Medo-Persians had done to him. Uh, And then it says in uh, verse 7 again, And the ram had no strength to withstand him. In other words, the Medo-Persians, they didn't have a chance. Even though they had the numbers. History tells us that the numbers were so unbelievably stacked in their favor that you would have thought for sure there would be a a win on their side. Who was on the side of the Grecians? Why the ancient days, God the Father. And that's why we move along. In history. So he hurled them to the ground and trampled on them, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. In other words, his pride just began to swell. Look out when that pride begins to swell. Trouble is on the horizon. So he magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, The Lord's horn was broken. Alexander was broken off between the age of possibly 31 and 33. We don't know exactly how old he was. He had moved himself all the way into India. And when he found that there was no place else to conquer, he became absolutely depressed. Came back to Iran, into the Persian area. And there's where history tells us that he drunk himself to death. And he died. But before he died, knowing he was going to die, he said this, I want my kingdom to go to the strong. And so he handed his kingdom to his four generals. Not his offspring, not his, uh, his children, but he handed over to four generals. Four generals, Cassandra, Lysimachus, Ptolemies, and Seleucus. Now, we're going to follow out Seleucus. We're going to forget about the other three. They're, they were significant. They were significant. But let's look at Seleucus, because from Seleucus comes this man named Antiochus, Epiphanes. This is what it says. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as he, um, uh, as he was mighty, the large horn was broken off, and his place came up four conspicuous horns. Can you see why the historian said, oh my, what are we going to do with this? Because they know that's exactly what transpired. That is exactly what transpired. And it grew up to the host of heaven. Excuse me. And out of, them, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn. That was Antiochus Epiphanes. He came out of the Seleucus, uh, the Seleucus uh, dynasty, which uh, camped themselves as a capital in Syria. And that's where he came out of. Now, this man was not supposed to reign as king. That's why they call him a little horn. Insignificant. He was insignificant. He wasn't even supposed to reign. He was the youngest son of his father. uh, 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 And his father uh, was the third of that particular dynasty. And he was the youngest son, so he had no right to the throne whatsoever. But because of his strong-headedness, he pushed himself into that particular role. And he became the king of the Seleucus uh, Seleucus, uh, dynasty. Now, we read on. And on the account of transgressions, excuse me, let's go to verse number 11. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts, and it removed the regular sacrifices from him, and the place of his sacrifice was thrown down. Now, I don't have a lot of time. And I may have to do this next week. But the only way you can really appreciate the book of Daniel and its prophetic accounts is to take history and to lay it alongside of the word of God. And this is where the historians really come into uh, some real problems. This is the apophical. The apophical writings. It was the Maccabean period. It's the period they say is between the Testaments. Okay. And, and, and this, is, this is what it says um, about this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, I'll just maybe uh, end up uh, ending here, and we'll go on from here as we go along. It says this. Um, it says, the wicked ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, king, uh, uh, son of King Antiochus III of Syria, was a descendant of one of Alexander's generals. Antiochus Epiphanes had been a hostage in Rome before he became king in Syria in the year of 137. So he was actually carried away out of Syria into Rome and was a hostage there. He had no rights to the throne whatsoever. And that's why the word of God says a small horn or a little horn. But listen to what it says after that. It says, which grew exceedingly. And so, this small horn did not remain small very long. He became a very large horn and a giant player uh, within God's history. It says, at that time, there appeared in the land of Israel a group of traitorous Jews. In other words, those who would give their lot over to this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. They said basically this, you can't beat them, join them. And that's exactly what they did. So the Jews who had no regard of the land and who had a bad influence on many of our people, they said, let's come to, to terms with the Gentiles for our uh, refusal to associate with them has brought us nothing uh, but trouble. This proposal appealed to many people uh, and some of them became so enthusiastic about it that they went to the king and received from the king from him permission to follow Gentile customs. They built in Jerusalem a stadium like those in the Greek cities. They had surgery performed to hide their circumcision, abandoned the holy covenant, and started associating with Gentiles and did all sorts of other evil things. When Antiochus had firmly established himself as king, he decided to conquer Egypt and the rule of, that, uh, and ruled the country as well as Syria. Now, he went in one time, was very unsuccessful, went in the second time, and he finally did end up conquering. Now, Ptolemies, who was from the Greek Empire, was ruling Egypt. That's one of the four. So he was basically, it seemed like he was battling against himself. But he really wasn't, because these kingdoms had separated themselves. These four generals had separated themselves, and that's what he did. In the year 143, after the conquest of Egypt, Antiochus marched with great armies against the land of Israel and the city of of Jerusalem. In his arrogance, he entered the temple and took away the golden altars and the lampstands with all its equipment. The table the bread offering to the Lord, the cups, the bowls, and the, gold, uh, the golden firepans, the curtains, and the crowns. He also stripped all the gold from in front of the temple. And he carried off the silver and the gold and everything else of value, including all the treasures that he could find stored there. Then he took it all to his own country. And, uh, he had, uh, he had also murdered many people and boasted arrogantly about it. This was the great mourning, uh, that everyone had in the land of Israel. Now it says this, and listen to this. Two years later, Antiochus sent a large army from Mycia against the town of Judah. When the soldiers entered Jerusalem, they command, the commander spoke to the people, offering them terms of peace, and completely deceived them. Then he suddenly launched a fierce attack on the city, dealing a great, great and major blow on them. Now look at verse number 25 of chapter number 8, just to see the accuracy of this particular uh, portion uh, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. I think the word peace is used in the King James. He actually calls on them for peace. In other words, he comes in with uh, uh, diplomatic words to sway the people over. And then when he gained their confidence in these false, lying peace treaties, he turned on them like a bad dog and went in there and just tore up Israel. He was the worst nightmare for Israel that there ever has been, but there's only one more coming. There's one more coming, you see. Antiochus Epiphanes, he is not directly the Antichrist. We're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But he is absolutely a type of the Antichrist in the last days. Absolutely. Without question. His character is identical to that of the Antichrist in the last days. Now, I wanna, I'm going to skip over. It says, um, Antiochus now issued a, a decree that all nations in his empire should abandon their own customs, customs and become one people. Now, What's the plight of the Antichrist? Well, chapter 17 of the Revelation. We want to bring together all the religions of the world so that we can put them under the same roof and they're that much more manageable, right? Chapter 18, we want to bring together the economic systems of the world. Revelation chapter 18, we bring them under one roof so they're absolutely manageable. That is exactly the, the plight of the Antichrist. And this was Antiochus' plight as well. He says this, And all Gentiles and even many of the Israelites submitted to this decree. They adopted the official pagan religion, offered sacrifice to idols, and no longer observed the Sabbath. Now, going down a little ways, it says this, Any book of the law which were found were torn up and burned, and anyone who was caught with a copy of that sacred law was their life was taken. Now, I want you to turn over to 8, verse ch- number 9. 8, verse number 9, it says this. Look what it says. <clears throat> Excuse me. Am I, am I uh, 8, 9 through 12? Uh, yes, it says, And out of uh, one of them came forth a rather small horn. Uh, verse number 10, And it grew up to host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. is talking about the Jewish people, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice. That's exactly what the uh, apocryphal says. Uh, it removed the, 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 the regular sacrifice, uh, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And listen to this word. And it will fling the truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. In other words, he's trying to abolish. And this has been going on for decade after decade after year after year. Let's abolish the word of God. That's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. I would invite you to read chapter 13 of the Revelation and find out the character of the Antichrist. And you're going to find out if you lay the character of Antiochus Epiphanes alongside of the character of the Antichrist, you're going to find out that they are identical in character. Why did Daniel go in shock? None of this was revealed before. All he ever heard was the Messiah that would come and rescue the nation. And now, all of a sudden, he hears of one inflicting unbelievable pain upon the nation of Israel. We know that happened in 163 B.C., and that happened under the, the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. He tore Jerusalem up. He took the babies that were born that were not circumcised and he would kill the baby and hang it around its mother's neck and then he would kill the mother and they would both lie in the dust of the ground with the baby wrapped around its neck. That's how cruel this man was. Is there one coming that would be more cruel? I'm afraid so. But the word of God gives us the assurance, doesn't it? As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when the trump sounds and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we who remain will be caught up. That Antichrist has no right on this earth with the bride of Christ still here. I'm convinced of that. We're gone. And then this Antichrist, which is going to make Antiochus Epiphany look like a choir boy, He's going to begin to to unravel Israel first. He knows where that's the power. That's where the promises of God pour out is from that city called Jerusalem. Why does he set up in Jerusalem? Because he knows. He knows his Bible's better than we do. The Lord Jesus Christ refers to it as the abomination of desolation. Listen, if you want proof that Daniel wrote this, I don't think you have to go any further than Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, where the Lord Jesus Christ calls Daniel the prophet. He's the prophet. There's no question that he was prophesying. There's no question as to who wrote this. Daniel was a statesman, wasn't he? He was a statesman for the Babylonians. He was a statesman for the Medo-Persians. But primarily, he was a prophet of God is what he was. And he told in such a powerful way this abomination of desolation that shall take place. Listen, if you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you don't really have to worry about too much of this. In fact, I'm convinced that you can go through your whole experience as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and never understand one word I just said, and still, when that trump sounds, the, the, the God of heaven is going to, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to look down and say, my child down there. There he is. And he's going to snatch him off this earth. And we're going to be forever with the Lord. And then will come the covenant. And then will come the Antichrist. And then will come the judgment on Israel and the judgment on the rebellious Gentile nations as well who have said no to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. It wasn't for himself. He died for your sins. He died for mine. And I'll tell you, it's a travesty. And it's tremendously dangerous to you when you say no to that to the blood that was shed and the life that was given, you say, no! Just like those Jews say, I'll not have this man to rule and reign over. I can do my own thing. Oh, kill it again. But I'll tell you, if that is your lot in life, then you will be judged just like those of the nation of Israel judged in that last day by this one Antichrist of whom Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of. Of next week, we'll continue on. We'll try to boom, try to do a lot. <laughs> it's just going to be an overview. It's going to be very very quick. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful that you, the Ancient of Days, are ultimately in control. The channels of water. Those kings are moved at your will. And you're setting the whole thing up. So that one day the Son of Man, that King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, will rule and reign on this earth. Oh, Father, we thank you that, that we have the hope of one day ruling with Him. Being with Him while He rules. Our Father, we just pray that each one in this room would take very seriously the offer of salvation that you make to them. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart the God of the raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Oh, Father, that, that they might take seriously this offer because to reject this offer has such devastating consequences. And they would believe. They would submit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And their burdens would be lifted. And they would receive life and light. We thank you, our Father, for such a plan of salvation. It marches forward. Whether we look at past history or we look at history that is still in the future. Oh, Father, your plan marches forward. We thank you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.